thank you, Trevor, uh, for reading for this morning. Good, good morning. I'm Chris. I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor here at the Olathe campus. Special welcome to you this morning, especially if this is like the first time you've torn yourself away from the TV watching basketball the last four days or three days, right? Anybody's brackets still intact? See a lot of depressed faces here. I hope we can help. We'll see. All right, but welcome, uh, especially if you're a guest with us. If, if you haven't been here with us the last bunch of weeks, we're in the middle of a, quite a long series in Matthew. Um, we've just finished going through the section called the Sermon on the Mount, and that was a mini-series that we, that we called the Unlikely Kingdom. And so now we're headed into the next mini-series, which deals with the series of events that follow the Sermon on the Mount. And we're calling this mini-series the Unlikely King. Because Jesus is coming as a king, but not as the kind of king that anybody expected. Speaking of unexpected things, have we ever seen a presidential campaign like this one? Kind of bit entertainment, kind of half nightmare, right? It's been kind of crazy. The interesting thing, though, about the craziness is I think it's caused like record attendances at like caucuses and, and, and voting for the primaries, hasn't it? A few weeks ago, I'm going to assume everybody here went and caucused, right? Which meant you stood in line for hours, right? Outside, and it was cold. I think it rained in a bunch of places. Missouri this past week, they also had huge lines, multiple hours long, and it was in the rain. But people wanted to make sure their vote counted, Right? And it's a bit the blessing and the curse of our democratic system, isn't it? Your vote counts. And that's an awesome thing. And anyone can run. And we're not sure if that's such a great thing this time around, right? You know, we'll see. The worst part about it, though, is it goes on and on and on. And the commercials are endless, aren't they? And we don't always know which one is actually being honest and truthful, how do we know which one speaks with authority? So Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like his big stump speech. This is why you should vote for me. And then he goes down from the mountain, crowds are following him, and it's like he embarks on the worst presidential campaign ever in a lot of ways. It almost looks like Jesus and the things that he does in chapter 8, it's almost like he's Michael Dukakis and Dan Quayle rolled into one, driving a tank while trying to spell the word potato, getting it all wrong. Only the people who remember that laughed, right? <laughs> Dating myself maybe a little bit. But, but Jesus has the grounds to run the best campaign ever, doesn't he? He starts his Sermon on the Mount. He starts his public ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Talk about a slogan to get people's attention in Israel. He follows it with a huge rally, thousands of people in attendance. And as far as we know, there was no fighting and no pepper spraying and no punches being thrown and no riots or anything like that. People are riveted to what he is saying and the picture of a new way of life that he is painting for them. And like Trevor read, when he's finished, it says in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. 
So the stage is set, isn't it? More rallies, landslide victories, a huge celebration, an overthrow of the Romans, everything that the Jews had been hoping for centuries. And then it's like the wheels deliberately are made to fall off as he leaves the mount, as he finishes his sermon. And he starts making decisions and doing things that you're not quite sure what's going on. You're like, what are you doing, Jesus? He leaves this big rally. Crowds are following him. And what's the very first thing that happens according to Matthew, in Matthew's gospel? A leper. Someone who's ceremoniously unclean with, with a very highly infectious skin disease somehow not only gets into the crowd making everyone around him unclean, but gets close enough to Jesus to talk to him. Jesus' security detail falls flat on its face right out of the gate. Bunch of rookies. Jesus still has an out though, right? Post-interview, post-event interviews, he goes, well, I didn't see the leper. What are you talking about? And what's a leper anyways, right? You know, he could have deflected whatever happened. But instead, when the leper asks Jesus to heal him, Jesus doesn't only say he'll heal him. He does what? He touches him. And remember, you don't even have to touch a leper, according to Israelite law, to become ceremoniously unclean. Even by being in the same proximity, breathing space, you become unclean. And it's a highly infectious disease. Jesus becomes a leper toucher. It's gross. Like skin and parts of body decay and fall off when you're a leper. Open wounds and Jesus touches the leper. And then if there's anything good that can come of that interaction because Jesus healed him, Jesus cancels that out too by looking the leper in the eye and saying, shh, don't tell anyone what just happened. And then he enters Capernaum and a centurion shows up. And, and, you know, I kind of imagine that the centurion starts walking towards Jesus and everybody in the crowd instantly starts pulling out their cell phones. And they're hitting record, right? They sense a confrontation waiting to happen. Rome has sent the big guns to take care of this potential uprising, this Jew that has thousands of people following him. They want to stop the, the, they want to stop the momentum. And all the Jews, they're thinking, police brutality. They're ready to send out their videos on YouTube and hashtag it and everything. But then a really interesting thing happens. The centurion doesn't come to detain Jesus or stop him. He comes and appeals to Jesus. He asks him for help. And Jesus, if he was a good Jew, would have put the Roman centurion in his place and said, you know what, you've got to do something for me before I do something for you. Instead, Jesus becomes a Roman sympathizer. You know, maybe Jesus can pretend he was misquoted in the press and said that what he, what he said to the jury was taken out of context. His campaign can still come back. He can still get a bounce back. And then it gets a little bit better, right? 
He goes to Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. You know, what can score more points than making your mother-in-law feel better, right? And then all kinds of people bring their, their sick family members to Jesus and he, and he heals them. That's good press. And we see that it could be good because a couple of people come to Jesus and they want, it's like they want to give them endorsements. So they say, hey, I'm ready to follow you. And how does Jesus respond? Eh, whatever. And he even says to one guy, dead schmed. Let the dead take care of themselves. So now Jesus is not just a Roman sympathizer and someone who touches lepers. Now he has no respect for parents, no respect for the dying, and no respect for Jewish law. And then it ends even worse. He goes to a village, casts two demons out, and ruins a whole local economy. Jesus starts with a huge group of people following, thousands of people, amazed at his words, thinking he speaks with authority, to a whole city saying, Please, just leave us alone. Please, go away. What is Jesus doing? Doesn't he know he's sabotaging himself? If he's going to institute the kingdom that he just spent three chapters talking about, don't you think he's going about it all wrong? He's only got a few people on his campaign staff, a couple of nobody disciples, that he's told to follow him. He consorts with nobodies on the social ladder. He touches a leper. He hangs out with people who have nothing to, to offer. He praises enemies of the state and then declines endorsements from people who might have some power and influence. Like all things, Jesus has a plan, doesn't he? Just not one that we fully understand. These seemingly poor decisions are calculated. But why would somebody care so little for popularity and affirmation? Because his is the upside-down kingdom. And he's the unlikely king. And because Jesus doesn't need your vote. Jesus doesn't need my vote. Jesus is a bad campaigner, but he's a good king. But he doesn't need my vote. And I'm not saying that someone who needs our vote or is looking to, to procure your vote is a bad thing at all. I'm not. Our voting system, when practiced with integrity and responsibility, is the best thing out there. It gives people a voice. And we should all vote. We should all do our civic duty. But Jesus doesn't need our vote. He doesn't need us to caucus for him. He doesn't need us to cast our vote for, for a, a winner-takes-all straw poll. He's not looking for our vote. Because Jesus has all authority. Because Jesus' authority is good. And Jesus' authority demands a response. So first, Jesus doesn't need your vote because he has all authority. He has all authority. He has it. In Matthew 7, verse 29, the people remarked that Jesus taught as one who had authority. As if he did. Jesus didn't have a, it didn't appear as if Jesus had all authority. He had authority and he had all of the authority. And we see the picture of that authority and that power at work 
all through chapter 8. That's why he does the things that he did. Because he, he had all authority and all power. We see it when he simply touches a leper, touches a person and heals them of their disease. Two chapters before he taught ask and receive. And so when the letter, leper asks him for something, he doesn't say, oh, you know, that's a nice thing to ask for. Maybe that could work. He says, I will. And he does. Because he has the authority to heal. To heal a disease which defined people not just physically, but socially as well. Because if you had leprosy, because it was contagious and because you were unclean, you were ostracized from the community. There was whole groups or villages of people who had leprosy living together outside of a city. And if you came near a leper, you crossed to the other side of the street because you, you didn't want to be anywhere near them. It also defined them spiritually. Because if you had leprosy, you were ceremoniously unclean and you could never get clean until you were healed. And if you were unclean, the whole Israelite law, a huge chunk of it was predicated on how to stay clean. And if you were unclean, what you had to do to become clean again. And if you could never become clean because of the disease that you had, that always meant spiritually you were second class or you were unrighteous. You were less than. So Jesus healing this person of their leprosy was also healing them spiritually as well. And if you're ostracized from your community because you're unclean and you haven't been touched by another human in years, can you imagine the power and the authority in Jesus' touch, in his human touch? He made this person human again. He restored the, the leper holistically in every way that he needed to be restored. Jesus also has authority over the physical and the elemental and the metaphysical as well, right? When he calms the storm, we see that. Chemistry and physics and meteorology are all subject to who Jesus is. So rather than just teaching, don't worry, when the disciples are freaking out and they're worried about the storm and their safety, Jesus says, what are you doing? Why are you worried? You see all this, you see this storm, you see the winds, you see the waves, you see the water. I made this. I was here at the beginning of time with my father making all this. You don't think I'm in control of this? Don't worry. The winds and the waves and the weather didn't respond to Jesus saying, hey, sir, you're not the boss of me. When Jesus said, calm down, they calmed down because he had all authority and power. And he has all authority and power over the supernatural. This is a really interesting one. He encounters two demon-possessed men. And you notice, they see Jesus coming, and what's the very first thing they, they do? They start begging for mercy. They offer a solution to Jesus, this problem of his presence with them. They offer him a solution, and they say, hey, leave us alone. Please, just send us into that, that herd of pigs. Jesus doesn't say a thing. At best, maybe he gives them the, the angry mom look, Right? He just looks at them and they know him and his authority and his power. They offer the solution. Jesus utters one word. He says, go. And they do exactly what he wants. That's power and authority over the supernatural and the spiritual. 
But I think his authority is exemplified by his interaction with the Roman centurion. Because the centurion is not just any Roman soldier. And he's not just an enemy of the Jews. And he was a commander of more than 100 soldiers. But he was much more than that as well. Because a centurion is a commissioned soldier of Rome. So a centurion would have been sent by the emperor to their post. And so if you disobey a centurion, you're actually disobeying the word of the emperor, the person of the emperor. And when you obey them, it's as if you're obeying the emperor as well. So when the centurion comes to Jesus and he submits to Jesus and he submits his authority, the emperor's authority to Jesus, acknowledges Jesus' power and authority, it's as if we're getting a true and perfect glimpse of Jesus' authority. Because Caesar was all-powerful, wasn't he? Politically at the time. But, but, but Caesar also, in many ways, claimed to be divine. And many people in the Roman Empire believed that Caesar was divine because he was so in control. So when the centurion comes to Jesus and asks for healing for his servant, submits to him, asking for Jesus' power and authority to be exercised over him from a distance simply by a word... It's like we're seeing a proper ordering of all authority as it stands and will be in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is in control, and Rome and everything it stands for is not. They are under Jesus' control and power. All power and authority has been given to Jesus by the Father. And we see this in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission when Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Go therefore. And he tells us what our job is. All people and all nations, all other possessors of power are under Jesus' authority. No one is excluded. His authority is for all people all over the globe. It's for lepers and the sick. It's for the foreigner and their servants. It's for mother-in-laws, women, and those with less rights. It's for the powerless. And it's also for the followers that Jesus chose and the ones that choose to follow him. No one is excluded. Everyone is under Jesus' authority. And it's not a democracy. Not only does Jesus not need your vote because he has all authority, but he doesn't need your vote because his authority is good. His authority is good. There's been a lot of conversation in the news and just culture the last few years about people who are in authority and whether they use their authority for good, hasn't there? And whether it's law enforcement or politicians or the military or those with wealth. Culturally, we're just naturally suspicious of those who have more power and influence than we do. And even if things are good for us, They feel like they come with a price, don't they? Drug commercials are a really good example, aren't they? Have you ever been watching TV and actually listened to a drug commercial? It's a little scary. Have high blood pressure? You can take this drug. Yeah, you might have headaches and dizziness and diarrhea and thoughts of killing yourself, but hey, blood pressure's gone, right? Or high blood pressure's gone. It sounds like a bit of a roll of the dice. 
And, but often we feel like when it comes to our freedom, is there too, price, uh, too high of a price to pay for it? A lot of times we don't. And, and don't get me wrong, freedom is incredibly important and incredibly valuable. God created us to have freedom and free will, and much of our Western value of freedom has been shaped by Western Christianity, and that's a really good thing. But the kind of freedom that we enjoy and that we long for has become what philosophers call a negative freedom. Thomas Hobbes, when he wrote about negative freedom, writes, a free man is he that in those things which by his strength and wit he is able to do is not hindered to do what he hath the will to do. He's essentially saying a free man is a person that isn't hindered by anything to do whatever he wants to do. Which sounds great for me until you try and do the exact same thing, right? And I think we've quoted the lyrics from Let It Go from Frozen like a lot. And we all love the song and we think it's cute. And especially when our children and grandchildren sing it. When a grown adult sings it, it's just kind of weird, right? <laughs> but we've used the lyrics for this song, to, for, the, for this point here quite a bit. The lyrics are, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Oh, it sounds great when a princess is singing it, right? But if I start singing it, if you start singing it, what, what it really would be, if we all actually believe that, it's, it would be, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Anarchy. That's what it would be. But when I think of my individual freedom, that's exactly what I think. And that's what you think. It's what we think. We're free from all constraints. But in this way, we don't end up actually being able to pursue things that are necessarily good for us. Now, if you know me a little bit, you know I like just a, f a few things a lot. And one of them at the top of the list is coffee. I love coffee. Good coffee. And there is bad coffee. And if you like bad coffee, we probably won't be friends. All right? <laughs> We will, but I'll try and teach you. All right? And if I, try, if I try and donate blood and they ask me my blood type, I always usually respond with French roast. Right? I drink it all the time. I kind of joke, too, and it's kind of not a joke, but I joke that when Genesis 1 verse 4 says God separated the light from the dark, it's actually a reference to light and dark roast coffee. God took the dark roast, which is the better roast, and he made a good, strong pot of French press, and he drank it. And how do you think he got so much done in six days? Right? <laughs> I love coffee. I love coffee ice cream. I love coffee cake, mostly just because I think it has coffee in it. But if I drank it all the time, what would happen? I'd have heart problems. I'd never sleep. I'd probably have high cholesterol, because I like my French pressed coffee. So I'm willing to limit my consumption of something I love in order to preserve my health and to enhance my appreciation for coffee. Because a weird thing happens when you drink too much good coffee. Even co good coffee starts to taste, ugh, you need something different. Too much of a good thing, too much freedom, and it begins to feel stale at best, dangerous at worst. Freedom can lose its goodness. We can take it for granted and begin to abuse it or abuse other people's freedom. T. 
Tim Keller writes about freedom. Freedom is not then simply the absence of restrictions, but rather consists of finding the right liberating restrictions. Put another way, we must actively take tactical freedom losses in order to receive strategic freedom gains. So while we're often suspect of something that seems too good to be true, Jesus' authority is good. It's truly good. Jesus is king, but he's not the kind of king that's just seeking to maintain his own power, his own wealth, his own influence, his own stability. Jesus, as a king, is using his authority and power to seek the flourishing and the well-being of his people. Your and my flourishing and well-being. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, he gives us a vision of the wedding banquet that will define the coming of his kingdom when he returns again. And so Matthew 8, as a whole, is a taste and a glimpse of what that banquet, that wedding banquet, will be like. And at that wedding banquet, all people from east and west will be welcome. All sickness will be healed. Death won't have any power. All of creation will live and work in harmony, and there will be no more fear Demons and evil will be cast out and sin will be no more. And if he's the good king over all of these things, over the wind and the waves, over death and demons, over sickness and fear, then he's the king over everything in my life as well. He's the king over everything in your life as well also. He's the king over your marriage and your family. And he'll make it whole if it's not. He's the king over your singleness. He'll give you contentedness and community. He's king over your education and your work, or and your school. And he'll give it purpose and direction. He's king over your work and your finances. He'll provide you what you need and he'll empower you to be generous. He's king over your health. He'll either give you healing or he'll give you the ability to trust in him when you can't be well. He's king over your body image and your self-esteem. He'll give you the ability to know you're created in his image. And you don't have to be a slave to this ideal of, what, of the perfect appearance or body type. He's king over your possessions and over your time. He'll give you satisfaction with what you have or even less than what you have. And he'll help you find happiness not in stuff, but in community and in his presence. And he's king over all nations and politics as well. He will bring justice and righteousness and peace. He's king over all things. There's nothing he doesn't have authority over. And that kind of king, that kind of authority, demands a response. Jesus authority demands a response. And like Nathan reminded us last week, if you were here, he says there's only two choices, really. There's Jesus, and there's everything else. There's nothing else. And all through Matthew chapter 8, we're given a picture that should compel us to see that the obvious choice is Jesus and his authority. Jesus and his power. Jesus and his love and mercy and grace. And we're given a vivid picture of how all kinds of people responded to that authority. They respond in trust. They, re they respond in submission, awe and wonder, and even fear. But there's no non-response 
in this chapter. There's no when it's convenient, Jesus. And so if your response to Jesus' authority isn't changing your life, isn't challenging your thought life, isn't rearranging your priorities, and you might be just giving him your vote. You might just be voting for him. Same for me. He wants him more than every four-year bumper sticker that you put on your car to tell other people that you're for him. He wants more than a yard sign that declares our affiliation. He wants everything. He wants every part of who I am. And so the leper, it means he wants your health and your relationship and your community. Like the centurion, he wants your power, your control, your authority, and your influence. Like Peter and his mother-in-law, he wants your family, he wants your possessions, he wants your hospitality and your generosity. Like the storm that physically threatened the safety of the disciples, he wants your trust when things seem out of control. Like the scribe and the disciple that said they would follow him, he wants your priorities. Nothing can come before Jesus. Like the herdsman, he wants your livelihood. He wants your work. He wants your ability to make a living. He wants your income and your economic power. He wants the value, think, the value that you think you have in the eyes of others because of the work that you do. He's not interested in my vote. He wants my life. He wants your loyalty. He wants our submission. And so as we close this morning, I've got some diagnostic questions that I'd like you to think about and ask yourself. Some questions that might help us figure out if maybe you are actually just voting for him instead of submitting to his authority. Have you made a decision for Jesus or a commitment to him? Do you have knowledge about Jesus? Do you know stuff about him? Or do you have intimacy with him? Is he one of many things that you follow? Or is he the first and only thing that you follow? Are you simply following the rules, trying to be a good person? Or are you following the person of Jesus? Are you self-empowered? Or are you filled with his spirit? You know, if I'm, if I'm answering in the first category of these questions, it's likely that I'm just voting for Jesus. He's just a convenient thing to be a part of my life to make me feel better about myself. But he wants me in the second category. He wants you in the second category. He wants your life. He wants your submission. And his authority demands it. And in his authority, we find real freedom. We have to be constantly willing to re-ask these questions. Because we're going to ask these questions and it's going to lead us into greater submission to Jesus. And then that submission gets a little bit easier. And then we get comfortable. And then we start voting for him. Instead of submitting to him. 
And this morning, the kids helped us remember that on Palm Sunday, the Israelites waved their, their palm branches as Jesus was entering Jerusalem and welcoming, as their king, welcoming him as their king. And they weren't mistaken. He was their king. But they thought he was headed to a coronation when he was headed to his crucifixion. He was instead headed to the cross. Today we're not just waving palm branches in remembrance of his march in Jerusalem. We remember palm branches remembering where Jesus as the unlikely king with all authority, all power, and all freedom was truly headed. He was completely free, and he still chose to submit and head to the cross for us. The goodness of Jesus' authority and the upside-down nature of his kingdom leads to the cross. The king died for us not as a king, but as a criminal. Not as one lauded, cheered, and applauded and celebrated, but one is jeered, insulted, and taunted. One, as one willingly bearing the price for our sin and our shame. In his, in his sacrificial death and defeat of sin, Jesus opened the door for the inauguration of his kingdom, this unlikely kingdom. He did it by freeing us from sin and from death and from bondage. He freed us to do more than just vote for him, but to joyfully submit to him and experience real freedom in who he is. And next week at Easter, we're going to celebrate that Jesus didn't remain in the grave. The unlikely king through his resurrection shows us that he is king over all things, over all of us with full authority and full power. He has the ability to make all things new and he invites you and I to be a part of making all things new with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you so much that so long ago when you came up with this solution to our sin, you decided that the best plan was for your son to come in the, in the flesh and live and dwell amongst us. To be someone who touches lepers, who praises the faith of foreign soldiers, who casts out demons, who wasn't seeking popularity and affirmation of the crowds. But, but one who joyfully submitted to your will even though he had power and authority over all things. Thank you, Lord, that he willingly went to the cross to bear our sin and shame when he, he was innocent. Lord, thank you that Jesus in all authority and all power gave us the perfect, perfect picture of what it means to be free by submitting to you and to your will. Lord, help us to see the goodness in submitting to you into your way of life that you have called us for and that you have created us to live into. Father, give us the courage to say yes to submitting, knowing that that submission gives us a greater measure of freedom than we could ever have on our own. Lord, help us to encourage each other to submit to you. Help us to encourage uh, ourselves to continually pursue after you and the freedom that you offer. Because we can't do it by ourselves, Lord. Father, we thank you that you have given us a taste of this life through your Son. And that we can continually taste that, 
that life that you have given and the kingdom that will come through your spirit being in us and empowering us to live as you have called us to live. Lord, we look forward joyfully, um, not just to a remembrance of Easter, but look forward to your return when all things will be made new, including us. Father, we thank you for who you are, for who you have been, for who we trust you will continue to be. In your name we pray. Amen.